Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about BetOnline.ag. BetOnline Sportsbook has all of your props, odds, promos, and parlays for the 2023 NBA Finals. Use our promo code BLEAVE. That's B-L-E-A-V to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. That's the whole purpose of podcasts. You can listen however and whenever you so choose, and we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever you may be listening We've got a great show coming at you. It's a fantabulous Wednesday, June 14th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we still appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. Okay, now we've got a fantabulous show coming at you today because for the last week, I have been looking for the space to weave in this incredible story about the PGA Tour and Live Golf deciding to merge and the PGA getting bought out by the Saudis. It's been wild. There, basically everything that can be said has been said on the topic. I know Alan Shipnick, who's like the premier golf journalist, has been doing the tours on all the major shows, talking about this story and what it means for the future of golf and what it means for the the. PGA Tour members like Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods who defended the tour, what it means for the live golfers who sold out and at the end of the day look like they're going to be the winners and the pay discrepancies in the sport while everyone's going to be making more money because the Saudi-backed tour has intentions other than just making money when it comes to the PGA Tour and investing in golf and as a result they're going to be spending above what they're making on even their television contracts or putting on these lavish events and because of this the labor is going to get paid more and golf is going to become more exclusive and we're going to ignore the above and beyond human rights violations associated with Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the best you could do is just try and be morally correct and when all of these factors are conspiring against you to not be morally correct then you find yourself in a difficult position because my position before was I'm live golf agnostic we talked about this literally a year ago this week uh, I did a podcast before graduating college talking about the whole live golf experience because each of the last three years this topic has come up around this time every year when the U.S. Open comes on and 
The Live Golf PGA Tour talk starts picking up because it's a summer topic in sports and golf matters a couple times when you're talking about a sport transforming and the same thing will happen when, in tennis when the Saudis start trying to invest money in tennis because apparently that's what the sovereign wealth fund over there is planning to invest in next when it comes to getting in, into the sports business and trying to buy up a sport similar to how they bought golf in America and across the world. I'd always been like live is allowed to exist and at the same time I'm not going to be the person who financially supports it. I'm not going to give them money. I'm not going to give them eyeballs on either their YouTube streams or later a TV partnership that was a true partnership of revenue sharing with the CW. And now that golf is going to be a unified league that's going to somehow maintain their antitrust exemption from the government while also accepting money from the Saudis, which sounds from an economic standpoint like kind of illegal, but at the same time, America's laws are increasingly more and more meant to not only protect rich people, but protect foreign investments from wealthy investments from wealthy foreign governments and investments from (laughs) from wealthy foreign governments with some moral and ethical improprieties that is more important than investing in the well-being of the middle class in America as that's the direction that America moves economically it feels like what's happening here should be illegal and no one's really going to do anything or step in to get involved here because America has this preconceived notion that regulation is a bad thing and all of this that mirrors America mirrored what my previous thoughts on live golf was, which is I'm live agnostic. I'm not going to support it. I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to give money to the Saudi-backed government as much as I possibly can. I understand that Saudi money is interwoven with Amazon and interwoven with Uber, and it's it's almost impossible to be perfectly morally correct when it comes to Saudi Arabia and infinite amounts of resources being invested into products that are a fabric of our daily lives. But I'm doing the best I can. And this leads me to the point that I wanted to say with today's show. And again, almost everything has been said on this topic when it comes to the foundational changes of the PGA, when it comes to the commissioner of the PGA, Jay Monahan, selling out the PGA golfers. I encourage you to read a really good story in um, in Golf Digest. I'm going to link it in the description of this episode describing the meeting between the PGA Tour players and Jay Monahan because there were a bunch of people calling for his resignation. It was about 90-10 against the move by the players to move to a partnership with the Saudi private sovereign wealth fund with the um, leader of the Saudi private wealth fund, whose name is escaping me right now, uh, Yasir al-Rumayan, him being the person with power, even though Jay Monahan is going to be the front-facing person, theoretically, of this new golf league. He's going to be a partner with a lot of power because they are the sugar babies who are investing in Jay Monahan's PGA Tour, and because they took the money from the Saudis. They work for the Saudis. It doesn't matter who's the front-facing person in the new league. It doesn't matter who's the commissioner. When you are getting paid by that company 
or that sovereign wealth fund, you are employed by that sovereign wealth fund. It's the same thing with Kevin Durant and Nike. And the the fact that a lot of Nike athletes make, or the top of the top Nike athletes like Kevin Durant makes more money from Nike than his NBA contract. You are employed by Nike. Your secondary employer is the Phoenix Suns or the Brooklyn Nets when you make more money from your Nike contract than you do from your basketball contract. You are employed by that company by virtue of accepting that money and the PGA is in that similar position again. It's really interesting dynamics around it that could be explored, but a lot of it's already been done, and uh, I'd encourage you to, a lot of the explanation has been done. Uh, If you want to check out Alan Shipnick's Twitter, he wrote a really good piece on the PGA Live merger and what it means for the sport of golf. Kind of a good, like, fundamental breakdown if you haven't been following the story, and then I linked the uh, story to Golf Digest uh, that's talking about the meeting where Jay Monahan got ripped a new one by the... PGA uh, players, and it was kind of contentious, and some interesting details came out of that. But the thing that I wanted to talk about today around that relates to something that we talked about earlier, which is being live agnostic is the best that was the best thing I could do when it came to there that tour's existence. It can exist on the side, but we don't have to financially support it, and we don't have to give it the attention that it may be craving or necessitating in order to survive as a league. Because the initial investment in Live was three years. They knew they were going to take a significant financial loss on the league. In fact, it was in the nine figures and and not low nine figures in terms of financial losses of getting that league off the ground. And at the same time, the Saudi investment fund didn't care whether it made money or not, because when you are richer than Jeff Bezos or richer than Elon Musk in terms of net worth, you don't necessarily have to worry about making money on every endeavor that you pursue. And what I mean by that is Elon Musk, who some regard as the richest man in the world, or some people say it's Jeff Bezos, but besides the point, Elon Musk is valued at a net worth of $226 billion. As of April of 2023, the Saudi Private Investment Fund, which is a sovereign wealth fund for the entire country of Saudi Arabia, they they have money that is generated by the state, pulled into a giant wealth fund that is then controlled by a select number of people, including this Yasir al-Rumayan person, who's the lead chair, the lead business person in charge of uh, running the Saudi um, Private Investment Fund. The Saudi Private Investment Fund, as of April, was valued at $650 billion worth of assets. Again, that is close to three times as much money as what Elon Musk is worth. And that is money that has been pooled by the Saudi Arabian government. And they're going out and investing in all sorts of aspects of our fundamental lives. Like I said, they've made investments in Amazon. They've made major investments in Uber. Fundamental foundational structures and systems of American life have Saudi-backed investment money because when you have $650 billion to spend, 
even when you have to pay a premium because of the moral and ethical resistance in America to making deals with the Saudi Arabian government, which is slowly but steadily fading as news outlets are becoming less critical of Saudi Arabian investments as it becomes more of an inevitability than something that can be corrected or pushed back on as um, as government figures like Donald Trump and members of the Republican Party have publicly accepted money from Saudi Arabia and Qatar and have normalized relations between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. You're seeing more and more that the private investment, fu- the public, the Saudi public investment fund which is a sovereign wealth fund valued at about $650 billion as of April. It's probably a little bit more now. The Saudi public investment fund is able to quell pushback because the money is so large that they don't have to worry about making money in every turn. Yes, they'd ultimately like to make money on their investments and have the intention of making money on their investments in the long run. But when you have $650 billion in assets that you can play with and manage, you can take high nine-figure losses investing in a live golf league or buying the PGA Tour. You can make those investments with the possibility of financial loss and have it not be a problem because, again, you have $650 billion. If you want to take financial losses, who gives a shit? You, It's literally impossible to burn through $650 billion even as a sovereign state, nonetheless, as uh, even as a as a sovereign, as, even as a state-funded investment, it's impossible to burn through six hundred and fifty billion dollars within a lifetime. Especially when you have an income that is continuously coming through via their oil and gas reserves that is a foundation of the global economy when it comes to gas-powered machines and when it comes to gas-powered vehicles. A foundational staple of that economy comes from Saudi Arabia and Qatar and countries that have these gigantic sovereign wealth funds where they can invest in what rich people want to invest in, just with a higher moral and ethical conundrum than even some of the richest Americans like Elon Musk, which is a massive moral and ethical conundrum at everything that Elon Musk is invested in and involved with. And at the same time, the Saudi Public Investment Fund has three times the amount of wealth and some might argue three times, if not more, the amount of moral and ethical conundrums associated with it. And if it was going to be a competition between the PGA Tour and the Live Golf League, the PGA Tour was going to have competition from Live Golf And they were going to have to spend more in order to prevent people from defecting to live golf. And PGA has plenty of revenue stream that the Live Golf League did not have. What changed for the PGA was their players did not have a union. And therefore the players didn't have a say on the agreement between PGA and Live to merge, merge because it didn't have to be collectively bargained amongst their labor. There was a player board of, I believe it's five players and a 16-person panel. Again, the Alan Shipnick story outlines it. There's a player panel that needs to approve it, but at the same time, legally, the PGA Tour has the authority to just do whatever they want when it comes to creating deals 
that don't need to be collectively bargained with their union because there isn't a pro golfers union. They are not unionized. Pro golfers make less cents on the dollar for what the league is making as compared to football and basketball and baseball and other unionized sports. And what Live Golf was achieving in a way was was forcing from a pure labor standpoint was forcing the PGA Tour to spend at higher rates in order to compete, which is partially the spirit of capitalism. I mean, you can have a debate about the capitalistic aspects of competition and free markets. If you're going to subscribe to the idea of free markets and not creating monopolies or antitrust exemptions for the PGA Tour in which, you know, Phil Mickelson was complaining years ago, PGA Tour players don't make enough compared to their peers in other sports in terms of a revenue-sharing model. They aren't allowed uh, certain benefits around their name, image, and likeness. When players enter the sport from amateur levels or from lesser tours, uh, they're often making around uh, six-figure contracts, and there's a question about what unions do for the people at the lowest ends of the spectrum when it comes to labor negotiations and people who make the least amount of money all often get squeezed in non-union positions. And so the PGA tour was forced to change their model of payment for their labor. A lot of PGA tour events went from having purses of $7 million and $8 million for all the players to $20 million. And by deductive reasoning, it doubled or even tripled the money that was going into the pockets of the uh, players who performed at tournaments. Even the base level salaries for new PGA members increased as a result of Live Golf because they wanted to prevent defections over to the sport from younger players and stars like Cam Smith, who won the British Open and then moved on to live or um, players like Bryson DeChambeau or Patrick Reed who were more established names but were still guys in their late 20s and early 30s which for a golfer is the prime of the sport I mean the the golf league is getting younger and younger at the PGA Tour level a lot of that is because the guys in their 30s and even their 40s have either retired or moved on to live or don't play the same PGA Tour schedule like Justin Rose isn't out there playing the PGA Tour schedule every weekend he's 39 years old and is preparing to play in a lot of these majors he's not out there every weekend playing the PGA Tour weekend to weekend events so a lot of the PGA Tours week to week players are people in their mid to early 20s and a lot of the people on the and even some in their 30s and people on the Live Golf Tour are established golfers who have a name brand reputation that could make them $100 million or $150 million guaranteed without uh, having to win them on the PGA Tour. And so that changed in small ways the economic model of the PGA Tour. And what the PGA Tour had as a competitive advantage is the popularity of the golf fan. And the PGA Tour probably would have one out on that even years and years down the road because the name brand reputation of the PGA Tour and specifically the television contract they had with CBS and NBC to broadcast PGA Tour events and the, remember as of 2019 CBS or the you know Viacom CBS partnership 
CBS and NBC, as of four years ago, carried all four majors. The Masters has been on CBS. The uh, PGA Championship is on CBS. The U.S. Open was previously on Fox, uh, purchased by NBC in 2019. And the British Open has been on NBC for about, I think, since like 2015. So CBS and NBC have partnerships with the PGA Tour and partnerships with the majors. And those partnerships with the majors was the thing that was providing brand recognition for the PGA Tour and was giving them, in essence a television contract in greater value because they were drawing an audience, say, the weekend after a major tour event or a weekend where there isn't a major sporting event, but you know that CBS or NBC is carrying a PGA Tour event. And again, it's not the television contract that would match, say, the NBA. The PGA Tour's television contract most recently was, I do not believe, in the six figures or sorry in the uh 10 figures which would be a billion dollars uh as of march 2020 which is when they signed their most recent media deal it was uh about 400 million dollars so less than what march madness is getting uh less than what the nba is getting per year less than what the cb uh less than what cbs is paying for the nfl uh less than what nbc is paying for well i guess nbc doesn't have that many sports less than what nbc is paying on their most recent college football deal and there is uh, it's about $680 million on that television deal, which I imagine is going to have to be renegotiated once they get to the logistics of the PGA Tour Live Golf deal. I would imagine that they have to renegotiate their television contract because I'm sure they didn't really confer with their television partners when it came to... Just to clarify, the deal they have with CBS and NBC goes through 2030. It was a nine-year extension valued at $700 million, so about $80 million a year, roughly, to broadcast the PGA Tour events. I think it's like 23 events or something like that, or 26 plus the FedEx Cup championship. So basically every other weekend of the year is the content that they put together there, and so What's interesting about the PGA Tour Live Golf battle when it came to like them folding the PGA Tour folding their hand and and deciding to take the Saudi money is they could have just wrote it out and probably would have made less money and the Live deal wouldn't have ever made a profit if they had just not paid attention to the Saudi Arabian live golf league and not worried about taking the money from the Saudi back golf league, they probably would have withstood the competition. Sure. A number of players would have ended up defecting and would have signed three-year contracts with live. The public perception of live golf was down. They weren't going to be able to outcompete the PGA tour. It didn't seem like they were taking audience away from the PGA Tour, and they would have probably outlasted them if they hadn't been concerned about maximizing value by taking the Saudi-backed money. 
if they had stood on their ground, competed with them, even with less resources, they would have been able to withstand it. They would have been able to make it through and probably ended up surviving with a number of people defecting back towards Live Golf or the Saudis just continuing to invest money into that league while filing a lawsuit against the PGA Tour. And maybe, and this is a philosophy that's been floated out a lot over the past few days, maybe a lot of the decision to merge was because they knew that lawsuit was coming and it wasn't going to go well for them. Maybe that's part of the story and they just wanted to get this lawsuit out of the way before it went into, um, before they started collecting evidence. I forgot what the term was called for it, but it, they would have gone another year collecting evidence. It would have gotten held up in the courts for a couple of years. Maybe the PGA ends up losing and getting bankrolled at the end of it. But I think they probably would have survived. I think they probably would have made it through the competition that was coming their way. Because as much as you were going to have some people defect, and as much as you were going to have some people moving in the other direction, they were winning the battle. They were winning the battle with the PGA Tour. and Or they were winning the battle of PGA versus Live. They had their television deal with CBS and NBC. They had the documentary over with Netflix and the PGA Tour's version of Drive to Survive, which was the... Um, the car racing show, the Formula One show. They had their version of that with Netflix. They had their sponsorships in place and they had their partnerships with the two networks that were broadcasting all four of the majors. They probably would have survived. Yes, there would have been competition. Yes, some people would have been upset about the split between the leagues, but it was becoming normal. Maybe it wasn't good for what people considered the game of golf, but you know what it was good for? The labor in the sport. The labor in the sport was winning because they had another entity willing to spend tons of money to purchase golfers and employ them at rates higher than the other sport and create a competitive league up against it. They would have survived. People would have either coexisted with both leagues or they would have ignored one and paid attention to the other, and then when major season came around, they would have refamiliarized themselves with some of the players. And the PGA Tour would have been fine. It would have been fine. Their television contract would have probably still gone up. They would have increased their revenues at the you know 5%, 4% rate that they were going at for the last 20 years. They would have been fine if they had just continued to ignore, ignore live golf, ignore the people defecting, ignore the fact that the sport is, but ignore the fact that the league is being bankrolled by people who have consistently pushed back against LGBTQ plus rights, against women's rights and being able to attend school, uh, a, a country that has killed journalists and a country that has funded terrorism over the last 20 years. Like you could have ignored all of that stuff allowed the league to exist, competed with them, paid your labor better, uh, even forming a union that would have potentially made the PGA Tour more desirable for your labor, and the PGA Tour probably would have survived. Would their profit margins have gone down? Potentially. 
Would their labor have been less likely to defect to the Live Golf Tour? Yes, it would have. That I can say definitively. Would their television contract have gone up? Would they have been able to increase revenues? Probably so, because the demand for live sports would have continued to grow and grow and grow. And unless they felt like, the again, the lawsuit being the X factor in all of this, they could have totally survived this. They could have totally just ignored, ignored, ignored. I heard... Uh, a, a long time ago, uh, I would say maybe pre-pandemic, but it's really stuck with me since the beginning of, maybe it was during the pandemic when we started doing this podcast. It was a conversation about AEW and WWE, and that led into a, just a conversation about competition in capitalistic societies, like competition amongst labor and collusion and antitrust exemptions and monopoly and all sorts of economic stuff that comes up in sports all the time. And... The great point was made that when a new entity is coming for you and coming for your stuff, at first you ignore them, then you mock them, then you compete with them, then you die. Think of MySpace and Facebook. When Facebook first came around, people ignored what Facebook was doing, then they mocked Mark Zuckerberg for being the, the child billionaire who was transforming the social media age and then they started competing with facebook and then they died because facebook had the superior product that could have happened in wwe first they ignored the aew league that got a television contract with turner and viacom cbs or not, Vi- not Viacom, CBS, with Warner Brothers or whoever it was back then. I, I don't know who owned them before. AT&T, Warner, whatever it was. You, you ignored them. Then you started mocking them and like making fun of wrestlers who defected to AEW. Then you started competing with them. They brought back, uh, I can't remember the name, the guy with the blonde hair whose dad used to wrestle. I'm not a big wrestling guy, but uh, the name I'm forgetting right now, who is the first big star of AEW and then went back to WWE recently. Then you started competing with them, and now that's where they're at, is the competition. And golf and the PGA Tour, as we knew it, kind of followed the same path. They ignored Live Golf. Then they mocked Live Golf and mocked the golfers who took the money. And by the way, as, as part of mocking it, they played deep into the moralities of that sport, ignoring the morality issues associated with the PGA Tour and the fact that they were an incredibly exclusive club that didn't that uh, didn't want black and brown people to compete on the PGA Tour. Forget the and Asian people to compete on the PGA Tour. Forget the fact that they suppressed wages of their employees refused to allow or really suppressed any opportunity for them to unionize while an elite group of white people in power in that sport continued to profit off the backs of labor that wasn't making enough for what they were worth like forget the parts that they were the capitalistic overlords of america they demonized the brown people who were creating a a rival golf league so much so that a lot of the, the a lot of the data that was collected from that time in 2021 and 2022 where they were demonizing the live golf league was going to be used against them in court when live golf was arguing they were being anti-competitive when it came to 
their um their tactics to dis uh to dismiss live golf and to mock live golf that it was anti-competitive and illegal and they were going to probably lose that lawsuit given the fact that they merged with live golf as fast as they did they were probably going to lose that lawsuit against the saudis and despite the fact that they were engaging in illegal smear campaigns and illegal wage suppression tactics and anti-competitive behavior that goes against that again feels like it should be illegal and probably should be looked into closer before the merger before all of that happens they mock the the live golf tour they dismiss the players who jump over to the league as if they're no longer professional golfers i think rory mcelroy used the phrase like they just don't exist anymore when it comes to them being professional golfers and then they competed with it and now they die the pga tour as you know it dies all the morality and ethical conundrums of the pga tour those go away because now you've got a whole new swath of ethical conundrums that are coming up that turns you off from the sport if you're someone who tries to be morally and ethically correct from the dirty dirty sport of pga golf that you don't want to invest in and just golf as a whole the uh what's his name uh the comedian george carlin was saying in the 1990s golf is an elitist waste of time waste of money racist sport and this elitist racist sport that has an audience worthy of getting 80 million dollars a year from cbs and nbc on their television contracts the elitist racist sport took the money from the Saudi government they were demonizing a couple years ago, and if they had just stuck with ignoring it, or if they had just mocked it in a way that didn't lead to anti-competitive lawsuits against them, or if they had just competed with the Live Golf Tour, they would have survived it. But what's the point of surviving if your profit margins are going to go down? What's the point of fighting with it if you have to compensate your labor fairly? What's the point if your legal cartel can no longer operate as a legal cartel? If we can't have that, then what's the point of this whole endeavor? Nah, instead of paying our labor or forming a union, nah, forget that. We'll just take the dirty Saudi money and from there we're just going to continue on as if nothing's happening even though our business daddies over in Saudi Arabia won. And they bought the golf league and now we answer to them because even if Jay Monahan or any commissioner is going to be the front-facing person of this new league, they answer to their business daddies the same way they answer to their sponsors. And they decided to die and collect the nice paychecks at the end of it, then try and compete, then to compensate their labor in a way that would make them more desirable than the people jumping to live golf. They chose to die instead of compete. And if they had just competed, if they had just ignored and said they're off doing their own thing, if they had just ignored, if they had just competed, they probably would have been fine. Their revenues would have kept going up. Yes, you'd have to pay your labor a little bit more, but it's not that bad of a thing to have to pay your labor more. But no, at the end of the day, profit margins are the most important thing. Who can exploit the, the person next to them the best? That's the, that's the sign of achievement in a capitalistic society. No, we're just going to take the money, 
continue to not compensate our labor properly and collect the revenues that we can then distribute to our board members and distribute. I don't know if the PGA is a publicly owned. Uh, they were publicly owned because they were listed as a nonprofit. No, we're just going to collect the money, privatize it, make it more exclusive so that the rich at the very top can collect more and more of the money. No. Why would we compensate our labor or compete when we have a legal cartel and we want to protect the legal cartel? This is where regulation would come in handy, but is anyone going to regulate the PGA Tour? No. Is anyone going to regulate the PGA Tour live merger, try and break it up for anti-competitive reasons? No. And this is why it feels kind of illegal what's happening right now, because... I mean, who cares? We'll just continue to exploit our labor and just collect the dirty Saudi money so that our legal cartel can continue with our new business daddies that fund terrorism and also golf leagues. Because they got three times as much money as Elon Musk in a sovereign wealth fund controlled by the state. And if we want to just drop some money over here in Uber, we can do it. If we want to drop some money over here in Amazon, we can do it. If we want to drop some money over here in golf or tennis... We can do it, and if we want to drop some money over here in funding terroristic, in de- funding uh, government militias in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, and funding terroristic operations that are responsible for 9/11, and if I my math is if my memory serves me correctly, I believe also funding terrorist organizations that were responsible for the Paris bombings in 2015. I could be incorrect on that. I am not 100% sure if that's connected to Saudi Arabia or not, but 9-11 definitely connected to the terroristic fundings of the Saudi-backed government. Again, if you have $650 million in a sovereign wealth fund, you can drop some money over here into golf. Less than a billion dollars in losses. If you want to buy, say, Manchester City, which is owned by the Saudi, uh, by the United Arab Emirates. They just won uh, the, the Champions League. They're owned by the United Arab Emirates in a similar situation. If you want to buy Paris Saint-Germain, the soccer team that Lionel Messi plays for, which is owned by the Qataris, you can do that. If you want to drop some money into Newcastle, which I believe is a soccer team owned by the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund, you can drop some money in there. This is all part. This is what happens when you have three times as much money as Elon Musk. You can drop money in these different places and people will take the money. And if the PGA Tour had seen that operation and just ignored it, they had just ignored it, then they probably would have been fine. Would have had to compete with the Live Golf Tour, but they wouldn't be dead like they are today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We've got episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays. Make sure to leave a five-star review, a download. If you're interested in supporting our dreams more, we've got a book. It's been out for a few months now. It's called The Spurs Dynasty. It's all about the San Antonio Spurs and Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan and David Robinson and the greatest dynasty in North American professional sports and how they kind of underachieved based on what they could have had. It's a very interesting story, and I encourage you all to maybe take a peek, read a couple chapters, listen to our audiobook that's available with the link in the description as well. There's so many different possibilities for you to continue supporting our dreams along with listening to podcasts like these. We'll talk to you again tomorrow, and in the meantime, take it 
easy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.